0: Welcome back to the Seth Liebson show. Uh, the Roman uh, poet Virgil said, um, um, here two things mortal, touch the soul, and that, and yet there are tears for passing things. We lost a giant. I've talked about him a little bit this week in our, um, in our country and in our movement um, in the name of, in the person of Bruce Hershinson. And uh, when I read about his passing, I knew there was one person I wanted to talk to about that, to communicate and uh, memorialize this uh, great life and great gift to uh, our scholarship. And that is uh, our good friend Pete Peterson, who is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, who not only knew Bruce well, but who Bruce had a hand in helping found that Pepperdine School. Pete, happy, um, happy Thursday. Thanks for joining us.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me on, Seth. It's a, it's an honor to uh, to be involved in remembering a great man.
0: It's amazing how many lives Bruce Hershenson touched. Um, because
1: you know, I've interviewed
0: people. They've gone to Pepperdine. They've lived in California, Southern California. Yeah, you know, I, I have about four or five names in my card catalog of Southern California academics, and <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would mention his name. And they, you know, they all, they will, they all knew of or were students of at one point or another, took courses from or mentorship from Bruce yeah. Hershenson. I got to know him only a little in 92 when I volunteered for a Senate campaign. I got mm-hmm. to know him much better later in life when I would interview him several times back in Washington DC on a different radio show. Uh, there are so many things that could be said. I'll start with this happy warrior and Using another Roman phrase, Latin phrase, mensch.
1: Yes. No, very well put, Seth. Uh, in fact, that, that phrase you say, they're happy warrior. Uh, my good friend, Troy Senek, who uh, was a White House speechwriter and a student of Bruce's here at the Graduate Policy School. Uh, just has a brand new piece out today in the Journal titled The Happiest Warrior. It's it's a
0: beautiful piece. He captured captured Bruce well.
1: He really did. And and just to your point about not only the example he set, but the lives that he directly influenced. I mean, he was a professor here, of course, for many years and influenced a lot of lives that way. But just in his example, um, he influenced so many. Uh, It's incalculable.
0: I have a uh, friend here who's a regular guest on this show. I don't know if I'm authorized to use his name in this story. Maybe next week I can. But he's a very prominent member of the community, uh, political community and leadership community in Arizona. And when Mm -hmm. I told him that Bruce had passed, um, he said, you know, it was 1985. And Mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to be um, his research assistant, which I wanted Mm -hmm. to do. And he told me, no, go to law school. You know, go to law school, and this man did, and he moved mountains here in Arizona. But you know that that too was Bruce—a uh, humility, if you yeah. will. You know, a humility.
1: No, and that was you know the the point that uh, Troy raises, and I knew this story before, but again, he was a graduate student of Bruce's, and after submitting a uh, one of his papers to Bruce. Uh, he arranges a follow up meeting to discuss the paper after uh, Professor Hershenson has graded it. And Troy comes in with some trepidation about what he's about to hear. And right from the get go, Bruce says, This paper demonstrates to me you are meant to be a White House speechwriter. Right. And then not only says that that's what you should be, he said, I've taken the liberty of sending this paper to my contacts in the Bush White House. There you go. <laughs> I mean, it was done. Yeah. Right? I mean that's that's the kind of person he, he, he helped was. a
0: lot of people oh, he made God. a lot of careers so he starts out tell tell the audience about Bruce Hershinson's life for those that don't know him or those who didn't see his face in Southern California on TV once a week. Talk to us about who Bruce Hershinson was.
1: Well, I can say just as a way of capturing it uh, I learned on Monday evening from the great Arnie Steinberg. I and know, the, Arnie. Yeah, great Republican luminary here mm-hmm. in California. He reached out to me to let me know that Bruce had passed. And that next morning I came in here to the office and I heard two stories within an hour of Bruce. One was uh, from one of the other people here in the office, our assistant dean. We get calls here regularly. Uh, from reporters and researchers that are looking to connect with Bruce about some various subject, and she was telling me that just three weeks ago, a reporter from Rolling Stone reached out because <laughs> I love it. Uh, she was researching a story on a USIA, US Information Agency tour back in the seventies that uh, was bringing Earth, Wind, and Fire behind the Iron Curtain. Mm. And, of course Bruce Hershenson was the facilitator of this. <laughs> right? so that's one story right this is Bruce Hershenson, the the entertainer the entertainer arranger the bon vivant the filmmaker well that, right? but so that's, that's
0: a, him the cultural warrior too bringing the, exactly right. bringing Western culture to uh, the Philistines yes of course and this yeah. was
1: three weeks ago we're right. getting this yeah. call, right yeah. the second the second story uh, the, the dean emeritus here at the policy school then Jim Wilburn, who's known Bruce for 50 years, no. um, is he still keeps an office here in the building here in Malibu. And I bump into him in the break room, and we're just talking, and he remembers a story. We had Russell Kirk here, as I think you know, Seth, as a visiting right. professor yeah. for a year or so. And it, during his time here, he wrote the book Roots of, Order, uh, okay. Roots of American Order. Uh-huh. And – they managed to cobble together some funding after the book was published to do a five-part documentary film based on Roots, because, you know, Roots is based on the five great cities and the mm-hmm. traditions of liberal Western thought that that started in Athens and ended up in Philadelphia in mm-hmm. 1776. Mm-hmm. And so Bruce was tasked with writing the treatment for this five-part documentary that was going to be filmed. and. The President Wilburn at the time, or Dean Wilburn at the time, was the head of all fundraising for Pepperdine, and they scheduled an intimate luncheon in downtown Los Angeles with Bruce and some other uh, prospective donors to help support this documentary effort. And Bruce was going to be the featured speaker because, of course, you know, he was writing the script for these uh, five parts. And sitting next to him was the voiceover artist that they had selected. Uh, to do the voiceover for the documentary, who was none other than Ronald Reagan.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And so here was this luncheon uh, in downtown Los Angeles with Reagan and Hershenson Mm -hmm. extolling the virtues of the Western tradition Mm -hmm. as they were pitching the idea to donors in downtown Los Angeles. And this is just, I mean, we haven't even gotten into his TV career. We haven't even gotten into the, all the books he's written, fiction and nonfiction, mm-hmm. uh, the talks, the, the many talks and lectures that he gave here, the classes that he taught. I mean, it would be his life as a movie.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and, and it just – He did great work on so many things. Um, and one of the things – I remember the cause of my interviews with him were usually when there was some kind of controversial um, – story documentary about Vietnam, I came, I, I, I went to him to correct the record. You yeah. know, that was a passion of his. What Wouldn't you say more than anything, anti-communism moved him more yeah. than anything? I think well,
1: so. Well, and, and liberty. Yeah, yeah. You know, his last lecture here uh, was just last year. And uh, Bruce and I had a tradition of if, if something had broken in an area of the world where he had particular expertise, which was most of the world, he would ping me and say, Pete, can you put together? Can you bring me in? I want to speak to students about this. And this happened to be at the time of the Hong Kong protest. Uh-huh. And I we scheduled to say, absolutely, Bruce, we'll make it happen in the next week. He comes in, gives a luncheon and lecture. And we have a number of. Uh, Chinese students, uh, graduate students here at the policy school, um, who took umbrage with some of the history that Bruce sure. was reciting, which, sure. of course, was factually correct. Sure. Sure. And he just brokered – he just gave no ground. Yeah. But at the same time, as you know, was completely winsome. Yeah, in what yeah, the most saying.
0: agreeable person you would ever find. The nicest, Absolutely. most decent yeah, – so what, what was it, this uh, – This uh, student of his who said you could argue with him, but you could never hate him. Is that right? Yeah, that's
1: exactly right. That's exactly who he was. And and but again, it was all toward a commitment towards liberty. Mm -hmm. In this case, it was liberty for Hong Kong. And um, and that was really his his guiding light and one that he defended across media, across disciplines and uh, across the world.
0: Let me do this. Can I keep you a little bit? Yeah. I want to talk to you about other goings on in Southern California right now, too. And what would Bruce say? What would Bruce think? I'm going to play you a quote from your mayor from yesterday when we come back. Can I do that with you? (laughs) We're talking to Pete Peterson, of course, the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Our guest is Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Great outfit. Uh, we we're talking about Bruce Hershenson. I'm going to turn it into um, to some more current events as well in a moment with uh, Dean Peterson. But, Pete, did you want to say anything else about Bruce before we move uh, forward to what uh, to, uh, to to uh, what I think he might have, <laughs> to the views I think he might have of <laughs> that I'm going to raise with you?
1: Yeah, you know, there's there's just a great line in this. Uh, Troy Senek piece in the City Journal, which I think actually uh, speaks to a, a time 30, 40 years ago, but I, I think it actually is very relevant to today, and that is the, the posture and uh, perspective of conservatives. Mm-hmm. And so here's the sentence. If your only examples of conservatism in the 1980s were Ronald Reagan and Bruce Hershenson, you could be forgiven for believing that all Republicans had a low resting heart rate a quick wit, great hair, and a voice that sounded like God yeah. after a glass of wine. Yeah. yeah. Unquote. Right. And you know, there there just was a winsomeness yeah. about Bruce. Even in the face. I mean that ninety two race, uh that was tough. <laughs> you know? It
0: was tough and it was the ugliest thing done to someone I've seen until Brett yep. Kavanaugh, maybe until Uh, Clarence Thomas and then Brett Cowan. It was the ugliest thing I've seen done to the most decent person it could be done to. And And
1: it didn't change him. No. You know, I'm sure there were some, you know, things that were kicked around the apartment there he had in Hollywood, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. you know, when he returned from some of those events and and so forth. But, But he just was such... Again, a happy warrior. I'll and, remind, uh, I
0: think he won a million more votes than the president uh, representing yeah. the Republican Party that year, which would have been George H.W. Bush. Yeah. 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 That's right. In California. In California. Yeah. Um, rest in peace, Bruce Hershinson. Pete, thank you yeah. for sharing memories with us. Can I play you your mayor from yesterday for a moment? Please. Okay. Bill?
1: My message couldn't be simpler. It's time to hunker down. It's time to cancel everything. And if it isn't essential, don't do it. Don't meet up with others outside your household. Don't host a gathering. Don't attend a gathering.
0: Cancel everything, Pete. Who says that? What kind of person says cancel everything? Don't meet with people. I mean, well, this –
1: words fail me. Yeah, no, and, and again, the what's happening here is Los, in Los Angeles is that some in the media are, are trying to make excuses, saying that the mayor didn't actually say what he said, uh, trying to mollify or moderate his remarks. But what you played just right there is straight from the mayor's mouth. And it does and, – and that's just one of several utterances of his in the last few days, which – seem to attack his citizens, you know, um, to hold them personally responsible and to question our own ability to make decisions about what we believe is best for our lives. And uh, it, is, it is very condescending and, uh, and, and quite, quite demanding, while understanding, as we're, we continue to see here in California, That uh, And we haven't seen a a story like this about Mayor Garcetti, just to be clear. But we certainly have seen with others that these mandates and proclamations are not being lived out by the politicians themselves.
0: That tells me, I I, I credit Adam Carolla with pointing this out, and it's this. The hypocrisy of that is one thing, whether it's the Austin mayor or some of your other mayors there. um, The hypocrisy is one thing. But there's another aspect that may be underplayed, which is by their actions of not abiding by what they tell us or order us to do. They're showing us maybe they don't even believe what they're saying. Why would they put themselves at the risk they tell us we are at if they're willing to do what we cannot? They may very well know they're lying to us, is what Adam says.
1: Well, you detect even in that. Clip you just played a certain level of exasperation,
0: uh-huh,
1: right, yep, and with that, and I think I think I don't mean to read too much into the mayor's remarks, but it would make sense to me, just given recent history here in Los Angeles, that nothing's working right, you know? right. and and the things that we're being told to do, the closing of schools, the closing of open air businesses, mm-hmm. the the staying off of beaches, all of this stuff is is not really directly related to at least what most of the research is, is telling us, the reopening of New York City schools that I know you've covered sure. after they were open and then closed right. and then open again. I mean, these are policymakers that, that are really making much more ideological decisions mm-hmm. than they are ones based in, in science and, and legitimate public policy.
0: Well, so you're a scholar of public policy. You've done a lot of research on aspects that come from the fallout of all this. What happens to a society that goes through so much whiplash? Because it fails to what trust. It, yeah,
1: yeah. It fails to trust. Yeah. And, of course, in a democracy, trust is everything mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what isn't given willingly uh, what when consent is not given wi- willingly, it may be demanded unwillingly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, this is all about the consent of the governed. Mm-hmm. That's that's what this this experiment has always been about. And if that consent is not forthcoming, based on very legitimate questions about the origins or uh, reasons for policy decisions, uh, yet those in political authority continue to demand or require uh that consent then frankly the penalties get ratcheted up and that's where you get into an extremely delicate place
0: you you, you and i uh talked long got acquainted got to know each other long before covid and one of the areas of research i was fascinated that you were engaged in was uh the issues having to do with isolation And um, it's not as if in January of 2020, that problem was not extant. Right. We are forcing more of it. And if you pay attention to the doctors, the scientists, the statistics, we're beginning to see the fallout. We are seeing a 900% increase in calls to suicide hotlines. We are seeing drug overdose deaths up by 42%. It's going to get worse before it gets better if we listen to the wrong scientists and the wrong political scientists, I believe.
1: Well, and of course, this goes back to the many conversations we've had over this last year, Seth, when we realize the difference between particular policy area experts and broader seeing, broader accountable um, elected leaders. It's the leader that needs to be able to weigh the expertise from the epidemiologist as well as the psychologist. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Who is able to weigh the implications of uh, shutdowns, whether for schools or otherwise, on the pandemic or virus against suicide. Yep. And to realize that by pulling one lever, you're not just solving one issue. You may be causing other problems. You bet. You bet.
0: Pete Peterson, you're great. Thank you, sir. Thanks for joining us. I love catching up with you.
1: Thanks so much, Seth. Great to be with you. You
0: bet. Dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Follow that man at Pete4CA on Twitter. We'll be right back. Whether you're looking to buy a house or sell a house, even if you're in the midst of selling a house and it's not going well, I want you to reach out to my friend James Wexler of JMG Real Estate. He'll flip that script for you. He guarantees to sell your home at market value or pay you the difference. And, of course, he can always make you an upfront guaranteed offer within a day of reaching out to him if that's easier for you. No risk. He'll always let you out of a contract at any Time. The Phoenix Business Journal ranks James the number one selling individual agent in Arizona. Give him a call at 480-386-0711 or visit him online at jameswexler.com. That's James Wexler, W-E-X-L-E-R, jameswexler.com. Um, we talked about Bruce Hershenson's passing, and yesterday we talked about Walter Williams' passing this week as well. It's a lot to bear. It's a lot to bear. John Hinderocker writes, Walter Williams, economist, teacher, and columnist, died yesterday. His longtime friend Tom Sowell writes movingly about Williams and links to a column, but then goes on to write, Williams, Walter Williams' last column appeared the day before his death. The information it contains is so remarkable and so timely that I want to highlight it. The subject is education, specifically the education of urban minorities. Williams writes, several years ago, Project Baltimore began an investigation into Baltimore's school system and what it found was an utter disgrace. In 19 of Baltimore's 39 high schools, out of 3,800 students, only 14 of them, less than 1%, were proficient in math. 3,800 students, 14 were proficient in math. In 13 of Baltimore's high schools, not a single student scored proficient in math. In five Baltimore City high schools, not a single student scored proficient in math or reading. These schools nevertheless have a 70% graduation rate. They are a fraud. The Detroit Public School Community District scored the lowest in the nation compared to 26 other urban districts for reading and mathematics at the 4th and 8th grade levels. A recent video captures some of this miseducation in Milwaukee high schools. In two city high schools, only one student tested proficient in math and none proficient in English. Shall we blame this education tragedy on racial discrimination or claim that it is a legacy of slavery? Thomas Sowell's research in Education Assumptions versus History documents academic excellence at Baltimore's Frederick Douglass High School and others. This academic excellence occurred during the late 1800s to mid-1900s, an era when blacks were much poorer than today and faced gross racial discrimination. Also in that book of souls is the story of Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School, a black public school in Washington, D.C. As early as 1899, its students scored higher on citywide tests than any of the city's white schools. From its founding in 1870 to 1955, most of its graduates went off to college. Dunbar's distinguished alumni include U.S. Senator Edward Brooke, physician Charles Drew, and during World War II, nearly a score of majors, nine colonels and lieutenant colonels, and a brigadier general. Today's Paul Lawrence Dunbar and Frederick Douglass High Schools have material resources that would have been unimaginable to their predecessors. However, having those resources has meant absolutely nothing in terms of academic achievement. The school climate, seldom discussed, plays a very important role in education. During the 2017 2018 school year, there were an estimated 962,000 violent incidents and 476,000 nonviolent incidents in U.S. public schools nationwide. Schools with a 1,000 or more students had at least one sworn law enforcement officer. About 90% of those law enforcement officers carry firearms. Aside from violence, there are many instances of outright disrespect for teachers. It's not odd in these schools to hear first and second graders telling their teachers to shut the you-know-what up and calling female teachers another word. Years ago... Much of the behavior of young people that we see today would have never been tolerated. There was the vice principal's office where corporal punishment would be administered for gross infractions. If the kid was unwise enough to tell his parents what happened, you know what mostly happened? He'd get more punishment at home. The rot in our urban public schools is a disgrace, but it largely reflects in concentrated form the larger rot in our society racial quotas, and school discipline. Look forward to that if Joe Biden becomes president, meaning that urban public schools will become even more lawless and dangerous. It is not a good thing to look forward to any more than it is a good thing to get used to. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson show. Why does he say he can't come before she even tells him the where and when you got a call from Shania Twain saying you're having a party is your first reaction. I don't think I can come or is your first response when and where anyway I uh, wanted to um, to remind something I mentioned uh, earlier today and yesterday I spoke about this a bit about things we can do. Things that are that we're, we're capable of as, as conservatives and Republicans. And first, it starts by knowing that whatever becomes of the putative Biden presidency, um, there's still a lot of power held by the Republican Party. As Newt Gingrich writes, former President Barack Obama and Attorney General Eric Holder spent years raising money to win the fight for state legislators so Democrats could gerrymander the U.S. House for the next decade. It's been estimated that Democrats outspent Republicans by at least three to one in state legislative races. The left-wing propaganda media spent months talking about the coming blue wave and the crushing of the GOP in an anti-Trump tide. The big internet companies censored conservatives and Republicans with greater and greater frequency as the election came closer. Yet when the elections for state legislators were over, the Republicans had created a populist grassroots tsunami which defeated the Democrats and set the stage for a decade of creativity at the state level. Republicans now have a majority in both houses of 31 states and have the state Senate in Minnesota. Minnesota is the only state with split control of the legislature and is a good example of the frustration Democrats are feeling after their blue wave evaporated. The state's Democratic Party spent $18 million trying to win the state Senate. They came up empty. The Democrats have legislative control in only 18 states. Further, Republicans control the legislatures and governorships in both, in 23 states, with roughly 136 million citizens. By contrast, the Democrats only control the legislature and governorships in 15 states, with 120 million people, more than 39 million of them in California. Republicans control the legislature in seven states with Democratic governors, while Democrats only control the legislature in three states with Republican governors. Some of the local contests were even more vividly one sided in favor of the Red Tsunami. In doing a podcast with the political director of the Republican State Leadership Committee, she, Edith Jorge Tunyan, cited Iowa and Texas as two great case studies of the failure of the Democrats to create a blue wave. Iowa was enormously competitive at every level this year. The Democrats' effort to defeat Senator Joni Ernst was massive and failed. In U.S. House races, the Republicans gained one decisively and kept the seat they already had. The Democrats dropped from three seats to one. In the last district, Republican Marianne Miller-Meeks is ahead by six votes in the closest contest of an election for the House since 1984. Meanwhile, the Democrats spent millions in Iowa, but Republicans were able to flip six state legislative seats, half of which were in Des Moines, the largest city in the state. In Texas, the second most populous state in the country, and a state Democrats convince themselves every two years they're about to, rent to win, Democrats were sure they'd have a shot at the suburban seats in major cities like Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio. When the campaign was over, the Democrats faced an epic failure. They spent millions to net zero seats. Republicans held the line in all but one seat, nine of which were beta wins in 2018. Furthermore, Republicans picked up one seat from the Democrats, so after all their effort, the Democrats had to regard this campaign as an enormous waste of money. The red tsunami was created because the American people rejected the radicalism of the Democrats and a new generation of Republican candidates brought new energy, ideas, and supporters to the GOP. In Georgia, Republicans elected their first Latino state senator. In Kansas, Republicans elected the youngest woman of the Kansas state senate. In Ohio, Republicans elected the first Indian American state senator. In Arizona, Republican women candidates had a 60% success rate and made up about 36% of the total Republican winners. Nationally, in the U.S., the impact of women candidates was enormous. Every Republican can take some confidence in these tumultuous times that at the grassroots and in the states, there is a Republican tsunami building which is going to overwhelm the imagined blue wave and create dynamic opportunities in 2021 and 2022. So please, please, do not get dejected. Do not think it doesn't matter. Do not withhold votes or support where you can give them. And let's work towards doing some things that will prevent this kind of year from ever happening again. Whether it's shutdowns and lockdowns, or whether it's the kind of fraud we're seeing. How about we start with a national voter ID law? How about we start with that? How about we take these Republican state legislatures and have them ban unsolicited mail-in ballots? How about we start confirming more judges like Amy Barrett and not let liberal and leftist judges take the federal benches? These are all things we can do if we hold the Senate. How about we prepare, roll up our sleeves and prepare to wage lawfare against executive orders that may be coming from a putative Biden presidency that we don't want. Just as they were prepared for every executive order of Donald Trump's, we we too shall be prepared. But remember, it only matters if we have the Senate, because the judiciary, the judiciary is the road that can bury those executive orders. It's the only road. Seth, we'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. I uh, was quoting from the conscience of a conservative in my monologue at the beginning of the show. I think I should close, like to close with how Barry Goldwater closed it there with just a small alteration in what he wrote. I don't think it could be more prescient. 1960. The future, as I see it, will unfold along one of two paths. Either the socialists will retain the offensive, will lay down one challenge after another, will invite us in local crisis after local crisis to choose between war and limited retreat, Mm -hmm. and will force us ultimately to surrender or accept war under the most disadvantageous circumstances. Or we will summon the will and the means for taking the initiative and wage a war of attrition against them and hope thereby to bring about the disintegration of their empire. One course runs the risk of war and leads in any case to probable defeat. The other runs the risk of war and holds forth the promise of victory. For Americans who cherish their lives, but their freedom... More, the, cha- the choice cannot be difficult. For Americans who cherish their lives, but their freedom more, the choice cannot be difficult. We used to have that sentiment throughout our history that we cherished our freedom more than we cherished our lives. We began our country that way. And up until about 2002... I would say we still held that view. We need to hold it again, for what we lose will be much greater than our lives if we don't. God bless. Class dismissed.